Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. I'm Clara Young, and I'm here in the studio with Fiona Murray. Professor Murray is the Associate Dean of Innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the co-director of MIT's Initiative for Innovation. We've been talking for a long time about getting more women into science, technology, engineering, and math, what we call STEM. I want to focus on what's going on with women in science and tech in the private sector. So why are fewer women pursuing scientific research careers in corporate R&D labs? So I think we first have to look, as you say, at the pipeline, if you like, of women coming into STEM uh, and STEM PhDs in universities. The numbers are looking very encouraging and are going up. Uh, we're seeing a lot of women especially coming into the biological sciences, uh, fewer going into mathematics and computer science, although even those numbers are on the rise. I think when we then start to look at where those PhDs go in their careers, I think women are probably disproportionately choosing to stay in academia because academia is in the vanguard, I think, of how we um, include women in innovation activities and the opportunities to be quite autonomous, run a lab, which is effectively like running a small enterprise mm-hmm. uh, and really making a contribution and making a difference. I think women also see that in the government sector, lots of opportunities to use their STEM talent in ways that they feel can actually very rapidly make an impact on the world. I think one of the things that we're seeing with the different choices about going into uh, the corporate world is the degree to which people feel as if they're empowered to actually have impact quite quickly. I know that my when I look at my students, um, the young women disproportionately want to have an impact on the world and tackle social problems compared to their young male counterparts. And what do they want to do, the male counterparts? What's their focus usually that's different from women? I think that their focus is on having interesting, challenging work. I think the young women want to do that too. But in addition, there's this additional layer of the way in which young women think about challenge, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very impact-oriented activity. Right. So I think that some of that is helping us think through how young women versus young men are sorting into different kinds of careers once they've got their PhD. I think what we might also be seeing is that academia has moved a little more quickly in having women in leadership positions. And so as women look to see what the kinds of opportunities are that would lie ahead of them in different sorts of organizations, uh, they're seeing more role models in academia and government than they are potentially in the private sector. You mentioned in the talk that you just gave uh, doing a study with um, MIT alumni with about about 100,000 members all over the world. And something that you notice when talking about taking an idea from lab to market is that a lot of the women did not do that. They did not go on uh, to become entrepreneurs. And one of the things that they mentioned was that they just simply had not been recruited or invited to do so. Yes, so I think traditionally when people were in academia, they thought about their role as um, getting a great education, working in the lab and publishing papers. And until reasonably recently, doing a startup and really taking your idea out the lab into a startup uh, was something that was a little bit unusual and perhaps sometimes a little bit countercultural and not exactly the norm. And so when you think about who is likely to take those kinds of risks, it's probably more likely to be the young men than the young women because it's already enough of a stretch for young women to go into a lab where perhaps they haven't had such a traditional role. And so the young men are going to be the ones taking the risk of adding another layer of complexity, if you like, to their career choices and doing something different. And so I think it's because of that that we see the men taking on that idea to impact activity, taking ideas from the lab to the market at a higher rate uh, than the women. As 
the commercialization activity and entrepreneurship out of universities becomes more supported, more institutionalized, more accepted, and indeed encouraged, when it becomes encouraged like that, we really are beginning to see a shift. And we're seeing many young female PhD students decide that they want to uh, drive their ideas out of the lab to really have that impact. And in fact, entrepreneurial careers then look very appealing against that. What do I want to do with my life? I want to have an impact quickly. Startups are a very interesting vehicle to do that. And so I think we're beginning to see a shift and that shift is really coming from the STEM women PhD students. You spoke about something called the engine. Yes. Could you talk about that a bit more and how that's helping the movement from lab to market for women? Yes. So one of the observations that was made at MIT was that there were some limits to the capital markets when we're trying to commercialize tough tech out of the university. Uh, when we're trying to commercialize digital technology, that is reasonably capital efficient and probably takes two to three years and a few million dollars to get to some sort of key uh, value inflection point. When we're talking about tough technology that might be in the life sciences, deep artificial intelligence, uh, applications to the industrial sector or energy, uh, you need a very much more significant amount of capital and you need patient capital that will take you through the often five to ten years of technical de-risking. So MIT identified that as a challenge and basically primed a new investment vehicle that is structured very much like venture capital, but with much more patience and a longer time horizon to invest in startups where there's still considerable technical risk that may well take time because the technology is so tough. Uh, and so that's an important new thing that uh, has been established. One of the very important decisions that MIT made was to have the leader, the CEO and um, partner in the engine uh, be Katie Ray, uh, a woman who has a long track record of venture investing in Boston uh, through Techstars and other vehicles. Uh, Katie is a tremendous role model actually for all investors, but her style as an investor, um, as a mentor to young teams and as somebody who really puts the entrepreneur at the center of the investment decision, I think has really encouraged a lot of the um, young women doing PhDs to step up and be CEOs um, and go to the engine to search for funding and mentorship. And so she's building a tough tech community of entrepreneurs, but that's a very inclusive, diverse community, even uh, from its very start. There's also something interesting that you talked about was that prolific women inventors and how they become hubs as they bring their products into the market. And on the other end, or at the top of the spectrum, let's say, uh, women CEOs and how that combination creates quite a good system for women scientists going into the private sector. Are you able to mention some of these women inventors who are really bringing women mm -hmm. with them and, and as well as CEOs? Yes, yeah, so if I look around my own institution uh, at MIT and I look at uh, some of the most prolific inventors, we do know that the prolific female inventors are much more likely to have other women involved in their patenting activities. And I might think about um, an individual like Sangeeta Bhatia, who's a professor in our Koch Institute of Bioengineering, who's a very prolific inventor, an entrepreneur, who has a very diverse laboratory of men and women that she brings um, along on her innovation journey with her, uh, or other leaders like uh, Daniela Roos in computer science. Uh, so those are, they are very important individuals on the academic side. On the corporate side, individuals like uh, Sophie Vanderbroek, who was the chief technology officer at Xerox and now leads IBM's Watson Lab, I think 
not only presents a really critical role model for young women joining those technology driven organizations in the corporate sector, uh, but has also made a point of making sure that her diversity and inclusion policies, particularly in hiring, really are constructed in a way that um, encourages young women as well as young men into the hiring pipeline and into that talent pipeline at an early age. You were also saying that one uh, important thing that we can do or governments can do to bring more gender equality into STEM corporations is um, measuring and that that will push businesses to hire more women and to be more inclusive. Can you talk more about that? Yes. So I think when we measure things, we tend to pay attention to them. So traditionally, we've been able to measure certain things in corporations around gender and equality. So we've been able to measure gender balance on the board, gender balance in the senior leadership team. And we've also been able to look at things like uh, payment equality or inequality in salaries and what have you. We haven't had any particularly good measures of gender-based issues on the innovation engine of these organizations. And so... My suggestion is that using the patent data, because we can disambiguate patents by the gender of different inventors, we can start to create an inclusion index uh, for each large corporation based on its patent portfolio. And so we can look at how inclusivity has changed over time. So we could look and trace it out over the last 20 years. We could look at how it varies by different location. So companies are often multi-locational. Uh, we can look at how it varies by location, and we can look at how it varies by different technological area. And so there are lots of ways of doing something that is even-handed, that we can measure in a fair way across different companies, and that we can measure over time. In my experience, when we measure these things, we really uh, put ourselves in a position to be able to make change, and it allows us to shine a bright light on something. So many of these sorts of um, indices, league tables, rankings, I think can be very important because when we measure something, it tends to be a signal that we care about it. I'm glad that you brought up the issue of patenting and and inventions because um, there was also one thing that um, I saw in the publication on science, technology, and innovation at the OECD is that the ratio for women to men in patenting is three to one among U.S. faculty members. That's the number that we have. Why do women not apply more for patents, and why are there not more women inventors? I think those statistics come from academic patents and patents in academia. And the work that I've done has looked specifically in the life sciences, uh, where we see about um, 25% of male faculty patenting and only about 10% of female faculty patenting. So that's similar sorts Mm. of numbers. Um, I think there are a few things. So one would be just that men and women tend to select into slightly different fields within academia, and some of those fields are more or less likely to be the subject of patentable inventions. But even when we account for that, again, I would say that because the patenting process, applying for patents, filing invention disclosures with your university and so on, is another layer of complexity beyond already raising research funding, uh, running a lab, teaching classes, publishing papers. It's sometimes been the case that for female faculty, it's already um, an additional challenge trying to gather those existing resources together because of some of the other biases and complexities in the system. And so then adding a layer of doing patenting as well can be more difficult. What I've seen in my own work is that when universities 
actively provide clear, simple institutional support for patenting. The rate at which women are likely to join uh, the ranks of inventors and really be part of the patenting innovation economy goes up very dramatically. And so there are some quite straightforward things that universities can do to really make a difference. When we go back to talking about the women hubs as inventors and the women CEOs, is there any particular policy um, that governments can push that you see would encourage this virtuous Mm -hmm. cycle? So I do think that from a policy point of view, I think we can encourage measurement and gathering of data and publication of data. So I think transparency of analysis and ranking and publication is actually something that the government can do and can encourage very strongly. I think government's role in evaluating universities and university um, quality, which they often do through analyzing publications, uh, they could also do through patenting and, and startups, but asking for the data broken down by gender would, again, be something that the government would have some considerable leverage, I think, in doing. Uh, I think the governments can also put into place, particularly around the risk capital community, to the extent that the government is putting into place either subsidies, uh, support mechanisms uh, for risk capital, tax policies, connecting those policies to directives around gender and inclusion can, I think, make a big difference. Because, again, it signals what the government cares about and it allows the government to tie one policy together, which is encouraging the risk capital community, with another policy, which is encouraging gender and diversity in those communities. So some kind of um, gender quota on equity? I don't think it has to be a quota, but the place I would start with, again, is to really ask the question. I would ask investors to really talk about, you know, this basic facts on the ground about who walks in the door asking for risk capital, what the um, gender and diversity composition is of those individuals, and then what their ultimate portfolio looks like. Uh, It's much the same as saying, what are the statistics that we have on who applies for a job versus what are the statistics on who actually gets the job? Because it allows us to see where the um, barriers are and where the challenges are in the system. Because if we don't see that many women showing up with business plans, that tells us one thing. Now, if we see plenty showing up, but very few getting invested, that tells us something else. Right, so because that's you, how I look at it. Because you did a study where women and men pitching their projects that were exactly the same, I think. Correct and the different success rates. So we basically wanted to look at whether there was uh, bias in the system. And the only way to really do that is to try to sort of hold the idea constant, uh, which is very hard in entrepreneurship because every idea is different. And so we did that by taking a single pitch and dubbing the voice of the pitch male and female uh, to try and isolate the very specific bias if there was one. And we did certainly see a bias in the degree to which people felt that these businesses were... um, investable and something that they would want to invest in. Uh, So that certainly means that there's a bias in the system. But we also probably want to make sure that we get enough women showing up with fantastic business plans uh, so that we have an overwhelming kind of parity of numbers of people showing up. I think the more that we see young women as well as young men participating in the innovation economy, it becomes more expected and more usual as opposed to unusual to have women... Uh, standing up, pitching businesses, being innovative leaders, leading innovation projects in the public, the private sector, and in the university sector. And over time, in addition to structural changes, that's really going to drive change and I think will lead to a, a great parity and opportunity for young men and young women instead. Thank you very much, Fiona. Thank you. 
And thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about gender equality in science, technology, and innovation, have a look at the OECD Science, Technology, and Innovation Outlook 2018 on our website. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud slash OECD.